Hello and welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of AZ Vineyard Church. This week, enjoy the podcast as truth is revealed in God's Word. Go get a notebook, grab a Bible, and expect to have an encounter with God today. Morning. Oh, I'm really loud. We got new mics. Yeah. Yay. I just got to look at all of you. You're so good looking. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house. I ask, Father God, that you would open hearts and minds for what you want to speak today, that we would be listening, that we would be open, that we would put everything aside that's not from you, and that we would take some nuggets home today. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today we are going to be going to the book of Luke. So go ahead to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at a story that you guys are probably all a little familiar with, the story of the Good Samaritan. But I want to dig a little bit deeper today to see what we can glean from this parable for our own lives. So... Um, rabbis, which Jesus was called rabbi, our teacher, rabbis use this form of teaching called parables. And it's not a true story. It's a fiction story that Jesus uses to bring home a point in a way that his listeners would understand. Okay? So the hearer of a parable has to unwrap it and find the truths. So it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So today we're going to dig deeper into this story, and I want you to think about how you can identify with each of the characters in this story, okay? I was a preschool teacher. I love story time. So we're going to share this story, and we're going to look at each of the characters in this story. So let's go to... um, First, I want to give you a little background we have to keep in mind that the religious scholars of the day were asking questions of Jesus trying to trap him because they didn't like the way he was behaving. He was fraternizing with the outcasts of society, and he was a rabbi after all. He was known to be with rough fishermen, with prostitutes, with tax collectors, and a bunch of other ill repute people. But yet they were following him, and the crowds were growing. And so the religious folk were getting a little nervous because things could very easily get out of their control, right? And don't we all want control? So the good religious folks were doing their best to discredit this guy so that he would look like a fool in the eyes of everyone who was following him. So now let's go to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And we're going to read 25 through 29. And I'm reading it out of the Amplified. So uh, let's see. Verse 25. And a certain lawyer, an expert in Mosaic law, stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this habitually, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, 
Wishing to justify and vindicate himself, asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So we see in the beginning of the story a lawyer. He was an expert in Mosaic law, and he's asking a pretty pointed question, right? Instead of giving an answer, Jesus asks him what he thinks the answer is. Don't you love how Jesus wants us to think for ourselves? Then the lawyer, wishing to further justify and vindicate himself, he wants to know exactly who his neighbor is so that he can check that box. We sometimes condemn the people in the Bible as we read it, but I can relate to this man. I want all the rules so that I know that I'm following them, or more like, how far can I really go without actually sinning? I'm sure I'm not the only one who wants the letter of the law spelled out for me so that I don't have to rely on the Holy Spirit who resides in me as he guides me into unfamiliar territory. Freedom from the law is a really scary place to be. It doesn't feel safe. What if I step out and do what the Holy Spirit is calling me to do and my church friends judge me? I could go on for a little while there, but I have a lot to cover, so I'll just let you think on that one. So as a person who knows a bit about the Bible, if I was asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, I might quote Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then I would probably go on to say that works cannot get you into heaven, by quoting Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But that wasn't the answer Jesus gave the lawyer. Instead, like a law professor himself, Jesus answered his question with a question of his own. The lawyer... We lost... Oh, back? Okay. The lawyer's baiting Jesus for a deep discussion... But Jesus simply says, you've answered correctly. Do this habitually and you will live. Of course he answered correctly. He's a law professional. And he's devoted his whole life to knowing the Mosaic law. But the issue this man needed to see that Jesus saw right away was his own lack of love and empathy. So the lawyer continues the conversation by asking, and who is my neighbor? I'm sure Jesus loved this man, but he was obeying the law out of duty, not out of love. Jesus got to the motive of why he wanted to obey the law. I'm sure Jesus loved this man deeply, and he wanted to heal him from his religious views and take him deeper into the love of the Father. So instead of answering his question, he tells him a story. I'm sure the lawyer was hoping for a theological discourse that would justify his position of placing limits on his love by other people's actions, other people's guilt, other people's wrong choices. But then Jesus turns the lawyer's position on its head. So let's go to, you can follow along. I'm going to be in verse 30 through 37. So Jesus starts the story man traveling from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was considered the center of the universe at this time, and it was the only true place of worship 
according to the Jewish tradition. And this man was headed to Jericho, and some thieves beat and robbed him, stripped him, and left him half dead. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was known as the Way of Blood. My mom used to live in Maryvale, and her back alley was probably the way of blood. So you can relate to this, this treacherous road that they traveled. What a terrible thing, the lawyer's probably thinking. He probably shouldn't have been traveling that road alone. It's a terrible road. He probably should have been more careful. Can we take a minute and relate to the injured man? He was probably a Jewish man headed back home from spending time worshiping in Jerusalem. He was probably trying to get home to his family. Maybe he left town later than he had intended. We don't know. There's not a lot that's said here, but you can think about it and put yourself in the place of the wounded man. Now, by coincidence, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Remember the roads back then were not four-lane highways. They weren't even two-lane roads. Think of a hiking trail. The priest would have maybe even had to step over this man, right? Don't want to get his blood on my clothes. But let's think about the priest a little bit. Maybe he was afraid the muggers were still nearby and would attack him. We all know good Samaritan laws are make sure you're safe first, right? I'm certain he was in a hurry to get home to his family after doing ministry in the temple all day. As a pastor in this house, there's times when I am done, I want to go home, I want to be with my family, I don't want to minister to one more person. He had already served his time for the Lord, and he was a very busy, important man. He probably wanted to help, but he really didn't have the time for all that it would entail to really help this man. Maybe he was struggling with a financial issue. Maybe he had a health problem. Maybe he was headed home to a family crisis. It's easy to judge the priest when we didn't walk in his shoes. Yet, he was also a priest. He had a higher calling to bring the goodness of God to the people, regardless of the circumstances, and he just walked by. Likewise, a Levite also came down to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side of the road as well. Now, this could have been a prudent thing to do because the man might be dead by now and if the Levite touched him, he would have defiled himself and he would have been unclean and he wouldn't be able to do the service for the Lord until he had been through all the cleansing rituals. So maybe that's self-interest. But is self-interest wrong? He is the worship leader after all and really needed to stay focused on what God had called him to do. He wasn't medically trained and this bozo walked the way of blood alone. He probably got what was coming to him after all. Can we relate to each of the characters? Then Jesus throws in a plot twist. But a Samaritan, oh, those Samaritans, They were considered foreigners, dogs. They were despised by the Jews. In fact, people would take the long way around so they didn't have to walk through Maryvale. I mean, Samaria. (laughs) In the previous chapter of Luke, 
chapter 9, verses 52 through 54, Jesus asked his disciples to go to Samarita, Samaria and find a place for them to stay. No one would have him because he was on his way to Jerusalem. The Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. So there was no place for them to stay. No one would bring them a meal. No one would let them stay in Samaria. And the disciples said, Oh, good. Can we torch them? Can we call down lightning from heaven? Can this be modern day Sodom and Gomorrah? Let's just torch them. And I'm sure Jesus just, oh. I'm sure he said, What in the world are you thinking? I'm trying to teach you people. I came so that we would bring life, not take life. So that's how much the Samaritans were despised. So now back to the story. A Samaritan who was traveling came upon him, and when he saw him, he was deeply moved with compassion. So I want to uh, talk a little bit about this word compassion. When we think of compassion, we think of Oh, I feel sorry for you. Oh, that's so bad. We think of pity. But the word in Greek, and I've been practicing this for days now, is splenizomaia. Try that one ten times, right? And what it really means... Okay, are you ready? This is going to be graphic. What this really means is it affects you so much in the pit of your stomach... Or in some interpretations, it says your bowels yearn. That doesn't sound like fun. The first part of the word splagna means internal organs. So it literally means to be moved so deeply by something that you feel it in the pit of your stomach. Far more than pity, this emotion moves us so completely that we can physically feel it. Have you seen things on the news that make you sick like you physically want to go throw up? That's the compassion that Jesus is talking about. It's a strong word about a strong response. There's nothing subtle or uncertain about it. Splagnizomaia, yes, means a visceral, gut-wrenching, emotional response that is so strong that we are physically moved to action. It suggests that when we see human need, we respond physically, emotionally, and decisively. This kind of compassion is not a timid, timid, subtle, or distant response. It's not a quiet virtue. It's active, pronounced, and demanding. It's a muscular compassion. With its vigorous response, it describes the reaction that we should have to someone in need. Are we clear on what compassion meant in this passage? If you don't remember anything else from today, remember that. So the Samaritan, deeply moved with compassion for him, went to him, bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them to soothe and disinfect the injuries, and he put him on his own pack animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took two denarii. I've heard that this was about two days' wages, but there's been some research done that it would have allowed for care for this man for about 60 days. So this was a very injured man. He needed a lot of care. And the Samaritan gave them to the innkeeper and said, 
Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I return. So I think sometimes we see ourselves as a good Samaritan, right? Who doesn't want to be the hero that comes in, saves the day, has all the good stuff for the poor guy, right? But in Luke 18, 19, Jesus was called good, and he said, Why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Because you see, it's not about us. Life, our life, is about trying to replicate the goodness of God. We want to do our best to operate in his power with the Holy Spirit in us to affect change in the world around us. We can't do anything truly good. Only he can. Isn't that a weight off your shoulders? You're not the good Samaritan. You're not supposed to be the good Samaritan. By telling this story, Jesus is revealing that he's the good Samaritan. So the Samaritan in the story, did he just travel the roads looking for wounded people? Was he a traveling EMT? No, no. I imagine he would have had to take off his cloak, rip off strips of his own coat to make some bandages. I doubt they had like the full first aid kit strapped on their donkey. I mean, they might have. Who knows? I didn't live back then. But in my imagination, this is what I'm seeing. Then he got into his own stash of wine and oil. If I'm getting into my stash of wine, I got to know you. You got to be my friend. (laughs) And he's probably thinking, man, I was going to use that to make dinner and have a nice glass of wine when I got to the inn later. I guess it's lucky for this poor guy that I have some to share. And now, man, I'm going to have to share a room with this guy. I don't even know him. He's probably going to moan and groan all night. I sure hope he doesn't die, though. Then I'm going to have a real mess on my hands. And I'm going to be delayed even longer from my destination. Besides that, I work really hard for my money. These robbers should have to pay for what they've done. Why am I left holding the bag here? And wait a minute. What will this guy do when he comes around and realizes I'm a Samaritan? Is he going to throat punch me? But those are not the thoughts the Samaritan seemed to have. He was deeply moved with compassion. Splagnizomaia. <laughs> he may have experienced this kind of trauma himself and could relate to the pain and humiliation this poor man was feeling. The Samaritan was shunned an outcast, so he knew how that felt for sure. So who would do this? Who would set aside their own plans, bandage nasty wounds, spend a significant sum of their own money, spend the night caring for a stranger, and arrange for his care when he had to leave, return to check on this man who most likely hated him, because he was a Samaritan and yet he was willing to settle all the costs, this story would have turned the lawyer's world upside down. Only our Jesus would make those kinds of sacrifices because we're not the good Samaritans. I can imagine the struggle the lawyer must have felt and the humility that came over him as he answered Jesus' question. Which of these three do you think proved himself a neighbor to the man who encountered the robbers? He couldn't even answer with the word Samaritan. Instead, he said, 
the one who showed compassion and mercy to him. Then I imagine Jesus' piercing eyes looking right into that lawyer's soul, and Jesus commanded. He didn't ask. He didn't suggest. He commanded, go and do likewise. Do you hear the answer to his question to eternal life? Jesus was telling the lawyer that he must love God and love his neighbor. Love requires action. Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. When we act justly, when we love mercy, and we walk humbly with our God, this looks differently for each of us. We all have different assignments that the Lord has planned for us from the beginning of time. Let's look at Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, his own master work, a work of art. You are his work of art. We were created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand. We'll be taking paths which he set so that we would walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us. That's a good life for us and for everyone around us. Take a look at the creativity wall if you haven't had a chance yet. Not one of those pieces of art is the same because he created us all differently. We have different assignments, but they're all the same in some way. To love God, love others, and take action to show that love. We need to see what's going on around us, be moved with that really big word, and take action. In the parable of the Samaritan, Jesus is double-dog daring us to get dirty, to serve the broken, to go and do likewise. A person is justified by what he does, but not just by faith alone. Let's go to James 2.24. You see that a man, a believer, is justified by works and not by faith alone. That is, by acts of obedience, a born-again believer reveals his faith. So by acts of obedience, we reveal that we really do believe that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is not contradicted in his statement in John fourteen six, where he says, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. But James is saying that true belief, true love and faith is demonstrated by action. Jesus' lesson from the moment he began his ministry as he quotes in Luke 4, 18 through 19 and 21, he enrolls the scroll from Isaiah and he proclaims, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Our mission, we talk about owning the mission. Our mission is to join him by his spirit. Let me say that again. By his spirit 
to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to release the oppressed, to do justice, to proclaim the gospel justice to the poor and oppressed. That requires us to stop making ourselves the center of our world and turn our eyes to Jesus. He knows the plan for your life, and he loves you and wants you to be about that plan. He wants to make each of us hope dealers as we surrender to his will and his ways. That means we have to be available. We have to be willing. We have to be deeply moved with compassion for the plight of those around us. And we need to stop looking at only the problems because the problems turn into monsters that will eat you. And we start praying. We pray for God to show us what our little part is in his big plan, his solution, because he is a God of solutions. There's one more person in this story that I want to develop just a little bit. I watched a great sermon this week from Levi Lusco that's titled, You're No Good Samaritan. It helped me really think about the character of the innkeeper in this story. And I also would highly suggest this book by Bruce Strom, Bruce Strom titled Gospel Justice. He is the... Um, lawyer and pastor who started the Gospel Justice Center that we are doing the last Saturday of every month here to help people with low-cost legal help. Um, great book. But um, I found in these, in these resources that something that really struck my heart. The Samaritan in Luke 10 needed a place to take the wounded man, a place where he would be welcomed and cared for, a place where healing could continue, a place of shelter and warmth, a place of sustenance. The church is the people that gather together. It's not a building. The church is the bride of Christ, and no organization on earth can replace her. She is to serve her husband and make their home available for the wounded and weary. The church is a gathering place for the sinners and the saints. We're all sinners saved by the work that Jesus did on the cross. Would our church welcome the despised Samaritan and the injured bleeding man that was half dead? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, We are not to simply bandage the wounds of the victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. If you're not familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German Lutheran pastor who died as a martyr in 1945 at Flossenburg Concentration Camp. I don't think you can be any more sold out and doing what God's called you to do than that man. In his book, Generous Justice, Pastor Tim Keller states that evangelism should go hand in hand with justice and mercy. When a city perceives a church as existing strictly and only for itself and its members, the preaching of that church will not resonate with outsiders. But if neighbors see church members loving their city through astonishing, sacrificial deeds of compassion, they would be much more open to the church's message. Deeds of mercy and justice should be done out of love, not simply as a means to the end of evangelism. And yet, there's no better way for Christians to lay a foundation for evangelism than by doing justice. God is not calling us to save the world. You can take a breath. It's not your job. That's his job. 
but we are to be the innkeepers. The good Samaritan said he would return. Sound like somebody you know? He'll return and bring more funds and reward the innkeeper for the care that he had given. Are you willing to be an innkeeper in your own home? Everything we have has been given to us as a gift by God. And there's a purpose to those gifts, not just to bless us, but to bless everyone around us. The Samaritan gave the innkeeper enough money to take care of this man for about 60 days and promised to cover any more expenses when he returned. God pays for what he orders and he supplies for the needs, but he does it through us. Our tithing is our returning to God what's already his. Jesus gave him money to take care, but he said, if it's more, then I will come and repay you. Anything we give above our tithe is a gift. It's an offering. It's praising our God with everything we have. The Samaritan said to take care of him, and whatever he needs, I will repay. Whatever we give above and beyond will bring a reward when Jesus comes. But we don't take care of people for the reward. We take care of people because we love our Jesus. He's our husband, and we want to serve him well. So as I close, I want to um, give you some tangible ways to be an innkeeper. Because we talked about action, right? We can talk about what the Bible says all day long, and if we don't implement it, it's nothing. So here's some ideas. I want you, first of all, to pray and ask Holy Spirit, because we're led by the Spirit, and he puts certain passions in each of our hearts. Like, my mom's passion is to minister to people who are experiencing homelessness. That's something God gave her. Not everybody has that same thing, but everyone has something, right? He prepared good works beforehand so that we would walk in them. So here's a really easy one. Bring in food for the family pantry. The shelves are getting pretty bare. And Nilda and I see people coming into the church almost every day looking for food. Times are really hard right now. Food costs have gone up crazy. And a lot of the people who are coming and asking for food are also experiencing homelessness. So if you're going to bring food in for the family pantry, think about things you could eat on the streets that you don't have a stove to eat. Think about those kinds of things. Um, as of Wednesday, the IHELP program is pretty well full to capacity. The IHELP program is an interfaith homeless emergency lodging program, and churches have banded together to provide shelter, safe place, food for people who are experiencing homelessness so that they can get back on their feet, right? Um, so you can give your time to projects like that. There's lots of ways to connect with the IHELP program, um, the Gospel Justice Center, we're reaching out. We're going to be doing some neighborhood outreaches coming up. If you're interested in any of that, you feel that burning like, oh yeah, that's something I want to get involved with, come see me. I would love to pl- help you plug in. Um, so maybe you have a burning desire on your heart that our church isn't currently involved with. Cool. You don't have to do it because we're doing it. If God made you differently with a different passion, cool. We want to pour gas on that fire. So 
I have all kinds of resources in the community that you can get plugged in. There's elder care uh, companies. There's um, pregnancy centers. There's food banks. There's immigration programming. There's foster care. Whatever strikes your heart and makes you, when you hear about it, it makes you sick to your stomach. That's Holy Spirit moving you with compassion to do something besides turn the channel because it's too hard to watch. You can serve in here where it's safe and cozy. It's a great place to start. We need people in children's ministry all the time. And guess what? It is the most effective ministry in the kingdom. Go look at stats for yourself. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like 85% of Christians gave their life to Jesus between the ages of 4 and 14. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous how effective it is. So if you're not involved in an effective ministry, there's an easy one. Royal Rangers, they're always looking for help in Royal Rangers. Youth ministry, they're always going to need help in youth ministry. The cleaning team, I mean, you don't even have to deal with very many people. If you're not a people person, cool. Come a vacuum. Great. Um, worship team. Hey, if you're not the best singer on the planet, that's okay. Come audition anyways. They might have a place for you. If you play an instrument, come. How about a life group host or leader? I mean, that's as simple as opening your house and letting people come and praise Jesus in your house. What a blessing. I mean, that's a no-brainer. How about prayer ministry team? I know they're getting ready to do some prayer ministry team training. Perfect time to plug in and pray for people and see Holy Spirit move and people get healed and saved and delivered on a Sunday morning for a half an hour of your time. I mean, cost is, we talked about cost. If it doesn't cost you anything, but that's a pretty small investment in the kingdom. My question today is, are you willing to really see to be moved with compassion, splendidzomaia, and take action. Our yes is the first step, and he'll show you the next step, and the next step, and the next step, and it will be the greatest adventure of your life. Thanks for listening to AZ Vineyard Church's podcast. We're located in Goodyear, Arizona. To learn more about our church, visit our website, azvineyard.com. That's A-Z-V-I-N-E-Y-A-R-D.com.